when a 14-year-old girl is asked to meet some of her schoolmates on her way home. Nothing seems out of the ordinary. Not long after that meeting, however, a mother would hear her child's last words, and an entire community will find out that their schools may not be as safe as they had thought. My name is Jan Benz, and you are listening to the first episode of a newly relaunched podcast named Wicked Crimes. For the last year, I've been trying to get this podcast up and running, but life always seemed to have different plans for me. Let's hope that life has now decided to let me go in my own direction again. For those of you that were listeners of Wicked Crime South Africa, please note that this relaunch also includes a few new changes to how the podcast will be done. But most importantly, I will no longer exclusively focus on South African cases. The vast majority of my cases will still be South African in nature, but I will sprinkle my lineup with some cases from other countries, and we will often see how these cases compare to our South African cases. I will also be changing how I explain some of the details in cases, This will just be to accommodate some of our international listeners a bit more. Now that the basics are covered, let's head into episode 1. The murder of Kiamuhetswe Sefolaro. Please be advised that this podcast contains content that could be harmful to some listeners. This includes but is not limited to strong language and graphic descriptions of violence, sexual activities and death. The purpose of this podcast is to bring recognition and a voice to the victims and their stories. This can often be traumatic. Please reconsider before consuming this content. The information shared within this podcast is mainly gathered from news articles relating to the crimes. Should you have any more information or know of inaccurate information in the content, please feel free to contact the host through the email found in the show notes. As often happens when we have a very young victim, very little information is available on their very short lives. This is a very bittersweet occurrence, in my opinion. I fully support the privacy of children. Their entire life should not be put on display for the public to make opinions and accusations as they please. I realize this might sound a bit harsh towards the public but I invite you to look at any public forum that encourages its members to share their opinions on crimes, especially during the early stages of the investigation. The public often looks for conspiracy theories, which tend to lead to victim shaming, and often these public opinions can become harmful to the case. This unfortunately seems to be a fact but not many people accept. And, as we've seen with several South African cases in the past 12 months alone, it's not only true, but it also holds consequences for some. When the public throws every opinion they have against the wall, they actually make the case for the defense easier and the prosecution a lot more difficult. The defense gets free labor, and they have a gazillion different conspiracies and alternate theories that they can bring up in court. And the court, of course, is not immune to the views of the public, no matter how hard the court officials try to stay away from these theories. This was very recently once again proven in an ongoing case here in South Africa, when after receiving a guilty judgment, the accused made certain insensitive comments to the press. In these comments, his lack of remorse for the crimes that he had committed were made very clear. When the time came around for his sentencing hearing, the judge himself reprimanded the accused for the quotes he gave the media. The judge then reminded the accused that he himself watches the news and that quotes like these 
make it hard for him to remain impartial. In matters where the public do the work of the defense, the prosecution, on the other hand, now has an even heavier burden to prove their case. This is because their case has already been ripped apart by people that don't even have all the information. So when a child, who by their very nature will make poor choices in life, is brought into the public's view, it just becomes so much worse. I'd like to remind you of the Jerebane van Baek case, which occurred in South Africa in early 2022. The case is still ongoing, so I won't go too deep into this. But it was alleged that Jerebane and his friends were attacked by their accused attacker when he caught them picking mangoes from his tree. When the public was informed of this information, I lost my temper so many times that I couldn't even count how many posts and comments I saw that blamed Jerobain for his own brutal murder. If he had not been stealing mangoes of a tree, he would not have been murdered, was the narrative that these victim blamers had put out into the world. Now think back to your own childhood and tell me how many times you stole a cookie from the jar or the change from your mom's purse, or even, for some of us, more criminally inclined ones, a cigarette or even a beer from your parents when they were distracted. Keeping the details of a young victim's life private protects them from the defamation we so often see from the public, and it gives the victim's loved ones something special and pure to hold on to. At the same time, however, it takes away from their identity. Instead of allowing the victim to become a person to the public, these young victims are often forgotten due to their lack of a legacy. As I said, it's bittersweet. So when I cover a case with a victim that is a minor, I always try to find as much information on them so I can add their voices to their stories, and so that I can add more to their story than just how it ends. Sometimes, I am lucky, and I find something, but most often, I don't. This is one of the cases where I couldn't find much information, so I want you to listen to Kiamo's story, and then make up your own happy, ideal life that she would have lived until she was unfortunate enough for us to learn her name. This case also has another aspect to it that makes it even more difficult to share. The perpetrators in this case were all also minors. When this happens, the court records are sealed and the press is prohibited from sharing personal details of the offender with the public. This once again becomes a cause of discontent to the public. We very often feel that we are entitled to the details of a crime, especially to the details pertaining to the offender. While I am inclined to agree with the identity of adult offenders being made public knowledge, I am of the opinion that a minor has a far greater chance of rehabilitation and should be awarded the opportunity to be reintroduced to society without prejudice. There is a whole conversation that can be held regarding the impact of a minor offender on the victim and their families. After all, sometimes the effect these offenders have on their victim, like in this case, means their victim loses their life. But, This is a debate I will hold out on for now, and perhaps in the future I'll have a chance to interview someone who has more knowledge on this topic. So let's get back to the case. What I could find out regarding Kiamo was that she was a very happy 14-year-old girl. She loved gospel music and would often sing the hymn, Modimo Ha 
Liteng ha yomatata. I would like to apologize for my pronunciation here. This is not in a language that I personally speak, and I'm sure I mispronounced the title of this hymn completely. Nevertheless, the title translates into Whenever God is around, there are no problems. Kiyama would normally sing this hymn while she would be busy with her household chores. Her teachers would tell that she was a very quiet and gentle soul. She would often convey her well-meaning heart through her actions instead of her words. From the articles in which I learned of Kiyamo, there were two different reports of what she wanted to do with her life. The one said that she had wanted to become an air hostess, and I can definitely see this. Being an air hostess is a great opportunity to travel and see the world while making some money. The other report I found is that Kiyamo counted herself lucky and valued the fact that she was receiving a proper education. So much so that she wanted to take advantage of the choices that this awards her and become a chartered accountant. At the age of 14, I wanted to become an actor. By 16, I wanted to be a chef. A few years ago, I wanted to be a radio host. And now, I don't know what I want to be. My point? Both of these reports on Kiamo can be accurate. Most of us don't know what we want to be for the vast majority of our lives. But the one thing that both these choices for Kiamo do have in common is that she wanted a future. She wanted to be successful and happy. When researching the case, I found a few discrepancies in regards to Kiamo's age. It seems to be generally confirmed that Kiamo was in grade 11, a grade in which South African teenagers normally turn 17. This is the age that Kiamo was given in several articles. However, the majority of the articles I found stated that Kiamo was 14. Although this is very rare, it is not unheard of for someone to be this young in the 11th grade. There are a majority of factors that could have led to this. I couldn't track down any of Kiamo's family to ask them if they would like to be part of this episode, so I had no way of confirming this information. Since the majority of the articles refer to Kiamo as being 14, I am inclined to believe that this is the accurate information. On Friday, the 1st of March 2013, 14-year-old Kiamo was on her way home from school, where she would most probably meet up with her mother and three siblings. She would do her homework, do some chores, have dinner, and eventually go off to bed. While walking the few blocks between Lucanio's secondary school and her home, Kiamo was cut off by a schoolmate. This is a girl Kiamo most probably knew, and there are conflicting reports on how well they knew each other. The schoolmate told Kiamo that one of their other schoolmates is looking for Kiamo, and she asked Kiamo to go with her and meet this girl. Since the area where the girls were waiting for Kiamo was not too far from her home, she agreed. Kiamo followed her fellow schoolmate to a small field just off Orient Street in Mohlakeng Extension 7. When Kiamo arrived there, she was met by two other girls. It will later be reported that one of the girls who was supposedly the ringleader of the group would have her 19-year-old boyfriend there as well. But we'll cover that detail closer to the end of the episode. As Kiamo came up to the two girls, the one that had led her to the field joined the other two, and the ringleader spoke to Kiamo. 
according to an article published by Independent Media on the 6th of March 2011, the ring said to Kiamo, quote, We are Satanists and we are here to kill you. End quote. These words were followed by four stab wounds to Kiamo's chest and face. This caused Kiamo to fall to the ground. Her attacker then sat on top of her and slit her throat. The attack on Kiamo was quick, and within minutes the girls had left the scene believing Kiamo to be deceased, or at least very close to it. It's unclear how long Kiamo remained in that field, surrounded by dirty nappies, rubble from a construction project long forgotten, and the dried feces of several animals and possibly humans who had relieved themselves there on their travels. At some point, a light rain had quickly moved past, leaving Kiamo wet. Not long after the rain, however, a passerby would discover the young girl. As the passerby started to alert others to the girl's presence, emergency services were called, but before they arrived there, someone on the scene was able to determine Kiamo's identity and figured out where she lived. Whether this was Kiamo, who had mustered the strength to inform the strangers who were gathering around her, while she herself was still clinging to life, or whether the strangers had found the information in her school bag, remains a mystery. I personally like to believe that Kiamo had the strength to share this information, because to me, this adds power to the legacy of this 14-year-old girl. The field in which Kiamo was attacked was not far from her home, and it wasn't long before one of the strangers returned with Kiamo's mother in tow. I cannot imagine the pain and shock that must have filled this woman, seeing her daughter in this horrific state, surrounded by what can only be classified as trash, her pain on display for everyone to see. In a last show of her incredible strength, Kiamo spoke to her mother and told her mother who had been responsible for this attack. It will later be reported, but after telling her mother this, Kiamo told her mother that she was attacked because she hung out around Satanists. After this, she told her mother that she loved her and did not want to leave her. Then, she said that she was tired, and she asked her mother to remove her shoes. This would be the last words that Kiamo spoke to anyone. There are conflicting reports about what happened next. Some reports said that Kiamo had passed away right there in her mother's arms. Some say that she had passed away in the ambulance on her way to the hospital. And some others said that she had passed away in the hospital once again, I choose to believe that Kiamo had passed away, surrounded by her mother's love, feeling safe in her mother's arms, one last time. The strength Kiamo had showed in staying conscious until her mother arrived would prove vital in this case. Kiamo's mother recognized the names that her daughter had given her, by that night, the ringleader would be arrested for the murder of Kiamo Getswe Sefalaro. Kiamo's family didn't waste time in rallying each other and supporting each other. By the next day, the family had gathered at the home in which Kiamo had lived with her mother and held a prayer session, no doubt asking for Kiamo's soul to find peace and happiness and asking for the strength the family would need in order to heal from this sudden pain, as well as to endure what would come. While the prayer session was underway, a schoolgirl burst into the Cephalaro home and started confessing 
the family, thinking quickly, started recording the young girl as she told them of the attack on Kiamo. She told them that she and another girl was instructed by the ringleader to commit the murder of Kiamo. As proof of her involvement, she produced Kiamo's cell phone and gave it to the family. Kiamo's cell phone had been missing the SIM card and its memory card was broken. The young girl then continued to tell the family that after Kiamo had been attacked, the two other girls had sucked the blood from her throat. She also told the family that Kiamo was not aware of a so-called satanic cult and that the ringleader had been, quote, after Kiamo's blood, end quote, for quite a while. Now, I'm sure you are already questioning this confession to the reported final words of Kiamo, in which she had said that she hung out with Satanists in the article that I quoted a bit earlier. Kiamo was told these girls were Satanists before they attacked her. The article itself claims that Kiamo's father shared this information with the reporters. Now, it may be possible that Kiamo told her mother this while she was clinging to life in the field, or that the schoolgirl mentioned this to the family during her confession. Whichever way it occurred, it does make sense to me that the girls, while planning the murder of Kiamo, had decided to befriend her at school before the attack occurred. In this way, they would ensure that she trusted them and that she would be willing to meet them in a secluded area when they are ready to enact their plan. If I had been trying to befriend her at school, it would make sense that they would not tell this girl who had been known to sing gospel songs that they were indeed Satanists. If they then, during the attack, confessed this, it would make sense that Kiyama told her mother that she hung out around Satanists. In those emotional final moments, there would not have been time, and Kiyama surely would not have had the energy to go into a full explanation. So yes, it is entirely possible that Kiyama knew nothing of her schoolmates' true beliefs. On Monday the 4th of March 2013, the ringleader would make her first appearance in court, where she would be officially charged with murder. The case would be postponed until the 12th of March in order to allow the ringleader to meet with a social worker and for this social worker to compile a report on the ringleader's history and her life at home. The ringleader would then be remanded to the Walter Sisulu Child and Youth Care Centre where she would stay for the duration of her trial. When the ringleader first entered the centre, she happily started to gloat about her actions, telling anyone who was willing to listen about what she had done before then attempting to recruit them into her satanic cult. As time went on, the ringleader claimed that Kiamu had started to haunt her, and it wasn't long before the haunting had caused the ringleader to change her views. A priest was called in, and suddenly the ringleader returned to Christianity. So much so that she was described as having become an example for the other children in the center. Now, this is something I see happen with almost every case I've covered where the motive had supposedly been satanic in nature. Normally, I would say that this is nothing more than a defense strategy by the offender hoping to use this as proof of remorse and signs of rehabilitation so that it can serve as mitigating factors during their sentencing. In this case, however, I cannot help but wonder if this was not the mind of a 15-year-old girl finally realizing what she had done.
had it finally occurred to her that she had committed an atrocity? Or did she simply have a lawyer that thought it might help her case? We'll never know their answer to this, but we can only hope that the ringleader's stereotypical change of belief was indeed sincere. Meanwhile, in the outside world, on Tuesday the 5th of March, two other events would take place. Firstly, a mob of people would gather outside the Cephalaro residence. This mob would swear vengeance for Kiamo's murder, with one woman telling the media, quote, We want them burnt, but first we want to remove all their toes so they can know and understand pain. End quote. Now this is a clear example of why the public should perhaps not be privileged to the identity of an offender, especially that of a child offender. Although I can sympathize with the emotions felt by the public, I am reminded of the old saying, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. Would another murder really make up for the life that had been lost? I cannot fault the family of any victim feeling that it might. But, in reality, this would change absolutely nothing for the family of the victim. They will still not get their loved one back. And then, there is the other family to think about. The family that is very rarely mentioned. And when they are mentioned, it is usually done in a very negative way. The family of the offender. A while ago, I attended the book release of Nicole Engelbrecht's book, The Samurai Sword Murderer. For those of you that don't know, the book covers the case that occurred in Krugersdorp on the outskirts of Johannesburg here in South Africa. In this case, a young boy by the name of Jacques Pretorius lost his life when his 18-year-old schoolmate Mournay Haramse attacked him and several other pupils at school. During this book event, and even in the book, Nicole spoke quite a bit about the impact that an offender's action has on their family. The feelings of guilt they have, thinking that somehow this is all their fault. The way that they are ostracized by their neighbors and friends. The way that nobody looks at them in the same way, as if they themselves had committed the crime. They need to deal with all of this, while also dealing with the fact that their child will be going to prison, and that they now have to accept and support a child that had taken the life of another. Of course, they do have the option of abandoning their child to their own devices, of turning their backs on their child in a moment of need and condemning them for these actions. But then again, even that comes with its own emotions that need to be worked through, and no matter what choice they make, they are vilified by the public. They are no longer known as the nice couple down the street. They are now forever known as the parents of a murderer. Would it be fair for us to add even more pain to these innocent bystanders whose life is already in ruins? In the case of Mornay Haramse, his crime made such headlines in South Africa that the press hounded his family non-stop. This made it so much worse as the entire country stood by and watched them become social outcasts and even rooted for it to happen. They had to read in newspapers about what horrible parents they are. They had to endure ridicule. And Mornay's brother, 
who was a few years younger than him at the time? How do we expect a child to deal with all of this, to return to the scene of his brother's crime on a daily basis, to be surrounded by his brother's victims, and to hear all the negative things being said about his family? Would it be fair for that child to now have to deal with the permanent loss of his brother as well? Before we continue, if you have not yet read Samurai Sword Murder by Nicole Engelbracht, I highly recommend you do so. And if you're someone who prefers to listen to your books, she narrated the audiobook herself and it is available on Audible. After the release of the book, I've decided to remove that case from my list of future cases. Given the media attention it received when the crime occurred, when Mornay Haramse received parole, and when the book was released, I believe that this story has been covered, and Jacques Pretorius's voice has been heard. Covering the story now will not bring any more justice for anyone. There is another case I want to bring up, however. This is a case I covered very early on in my podcasting journey. The case of Mandla Sabia. In this case, Mandla was accused of witchcraft and murdering a young boy that had in truth committed suicide. The community, much like in Kiamo's case, rallied and they worked themselves up. Before long, Mandla was brought before a traditional court where he lost his life. In this case, Mandla was murdered by the community simply because they thought he had done something wrong, based on information given to them by a Sangoma, which for those of you who don't know, is a traditional African healer. The Sangoma did not have any evidence to prove this, but his word was enough for the people. This is what happens when a mob is allowed to decide on what justice is. Innocent lives are lost, and there is no way to get these lives back. Now, I bring up the case of Mandla Sabia, because while a mob hell-bent on vengeance gathered at the Sefilaro residence, the second event of the day had been brewing at the Lucano Secondary School that Kiamo and her attackers all attended. Gauteng MEC of Education at the time, Barbara Creasy, had paid the school a visit. During her visit to the school, she informed media outlets that a total of 10 students had been suspended from the school on allegations of participating in harmful religious practices. This was evidenced by the fact that many of them were found to be in possession of drawings and poems about the devil. Now, we have an angry mob seeking revenge and 10 targets. I honestly believe the only reason the worst-case scenario did not come into play here is because the mob at the Cephalaro home would only learn of the suspensions the next day in the paper, and by then, they had already calmed down. But I am scared to think of what would have happened if the mob had been given the information that 10 students had been connected to harmful practices, while this mob was at the height of their anger. In a moment, we will look into the term harmful religious practices, but for now, we'll move on with the case. Included in the 10 suspended students were the other two girls who had been present at Kiamo's attack. Their cases were not covered by the media, and this is the last we hear of them 
for quite a while. On Thursday, the 7th of March, the school would hold a memorial service for Kiamo. Amy C. Barbara Creasy would once again be reported to attend. And this time she told the media that she had a team working at the school to give psychosocial assistance to students that had been victimized or lured into, quote, some kind of cult practices, end quote. Again, we'll get to these statements in a moment. At this time, investigators had not spoken with Kiamo's family yet. Her family had not been questioned, consoled, or in any way approached by the SAPS. Now this, to me, is quite concerning. As we already know, Kiamo had given her mother the identity of her attackers, and this obviously must have been shared with investigators as they arrested the ringleader that same night. But according to my logic, the SAPS would still need to question Kiamo's mother to establish how she knew who the girls were, how she had known of the attack on her child, and how she had gotten to the scene. Then, we had the fact that the day after the attack, the family recorded a confession by one of the attackers, would the investigators not require that recording, Kiamo's phone that had been removed from the scene, and statements from all those present when the confession was made? At the very least, should her family not have been visited by the investigating officer in person to inform them that an arrest had been made? Two days later, On Sunday the 9th of March 2013, Kiamo's family would be allowed to lay Kiamo to rest. They would participate in a funeral that is meant to give them closure and to say a final goodbye to their loved one so that their journey of healing can begin. Unfortunately, their healing would not be able to start on that day, not while Kiamo's case was still ongoing. On the 12th of March, the ringleader appeared in court again, where the court would hear the report made by the social worker. During this appearance, the ringleader was ordered to undergo psychological evaluation, and the case will once again be postponed. Here again, we have contradicting reports. Most media articles I found said that the case was postponed until the 26th of March, while a few others said the case was postponed until the 26th of April. In my opinion, the case would have been postponed until April to ensure that there would be enough time to find a suitable psychologist and allow the ringleader to be observed for 30 days, as this is the normal procedure. While this had been happening inside the court, Kiamo's family, however, was outside the court, battling to get in. Now what normally happens in a case involving a minor is the court would be closed to the public, but the family of the victim would still be allowed to attend. For whatever reason, on this day, Kiamo's family was denied entrance to the court, and even worse, They had not been informed that the hearing would take place through any official channel. At this time, they had only received one visit from the investigating officer, who had refused to divulge any information to the family. When the family would attempt to contact him after this visit, just to find out what is happening in the case, he would ignore their calls. To make matters worse, the family would be approached by reporters who informed them that they had interviewed other students that attended the same school as Kiamo and that these students had informed them that Kiamo had not only known about the so-called satanic cult but that she had been a part of it and had finally been murdered because she refused to sacrifice her own mother.
Kiyama's older brother quickly shut these rumors down and said that there was no credibility to them, as they were in possession of Kiyama's phone and had gone through it and found no evidence that showed that Kiyama was involved in anything like this. Remember what I said about the public making up their own conspiracy theories and stories? This is a prime example of that. I also for the life of me cannot understand why any respectable media outlet would further claims like these made by schoolchildren. But then again, some articles are written for sensation and not information. Now let's take a quick break from the case again. Remember earlier what Barbara Creasy had said regarding harmful religious practices and children being victimized and lured into occult practices? Well, the wonderful MEC had some more to say. While speaking at a signing ceremony with religious groups, where the goal was to develop anti-harmful religious strategies in schools, she made the following statement, quote, The practitioners from faith-based organizations are developing an anti-harmful religious practice strategy to guide and protect learners from spiritual attacks and abuse. End quote. Now she had used the term harmful religious practices quite a few times by this stage, and I could not help but wonder what this includes and who determines what it includes. Then, there is also the fact that she had gathered several religious groups, and once again, I could not help but wonder from which religion these groups were. It would become evident that at the very least, no religion that falls under the pagan umbrella was invited to the signing ceremony, or asked to add their input to the strategies in combating harmful religious practices. You see, my problem is not with the term harmful religious practices, as there is a possibility of harm being done through any religion, and I wholeheartedly agree that any practices within a religion that can bring harm to others should be stopped in its tracks. Unfortunately, when most people stop agreeing with me, it's when I say that harmful religious practices can be found even in Christianity. You don't have to look further than your closest LGBTQIA person for confirmation of this. And if you don't want to hear from a member of the LGBTQIA community, just Google the term religious trauma. Since we live in a world that is very Christian focused, it's often seen as an insult to outright say that Christians can bring harm through their beliefs, which is why this almost always gets overlooked. Aside from that, our Christian-centric society believes that Christians are the foremost experts on what is right and what is wrong in religion. So when experts are called in to help with harmful religious practices, they are almost exclusively Christians who will focus on every other religion. You see, my argument is not that we should not be removing harmful religious practices, but instead, that everyone is allowed input as to what harmful religious practices are. Not just one group of people, but are almost guaranteed to be biased. Yet, this is exactly what happened when the MEC took her stand against harmful religious practices. Only Christians were invited to give their input, which meant that any religion outside of the norm was vilified. This would often default to Satanism and the occult, 
where the occult tends to include religions like Wicca and Druidism. These are spiritual paths which often mainly focus on not doing harm to others. The South African Pagan Rights Alliance also picked up on this and announced that they would be laying charges of hate speech against the MEC at the Human Rights Commission. Unfortunately, I could not find any information regarding whether anything ever came of this. Back to the case, however. The media attention had started to drift away from this case, and the next bit of information I could find on this case was when on the 4th of October, the ringleader appeared in court and admitted to the attack on Kiamo. In her statement, she told how she attacked Kiamo because she had once been a member of their cult, but had decided to leave it. They had decided that Kiamo would not be allowed to leave the cult, since she knew who the members of the cult were, and about some of their rituals, such as going to a cemetery at night, cutting each other open, and drinking one another's blood. Oh, and murdering Kiamo, would also allow her to move up in rank in the cult and receive some special abilities like being able to fit through the keyhole in a door and entering and exiting a bank without being detected. The ringleader also admitted that her 19-year-old boyfriend was present at the attack and that he encouraged her during the attack. I could find no other mention of this boyfriend anywhere, and I cannot tell you if he was ever charged with anything or sentenced. On Friday the 11th of October, exactly 8 months and 7 days after the murder of Kiamoghetswe Sefularo, Judge Geraldine Borges sentenced the ringleader of the attack to 10 years in the juvenile section at Lyukov Prison, with two years being suspended. During the sentencing, Judge Borges said that there was no evidence that the ringleader was not in control of her own actions, and that she did not believe the story of her sudden rehabilitation after supposedly being haunted by Kiamo. Judge Borges also said that if a ringleader had been 10 years older, she would have handed down a life sentence. Upon hearing the sentence, Kiamo's family broke down in tears. Kiamo's mother collapsed and had to receive medical attention and was taken to the hospital by paramedics. A family member told the media that they feel 10 years was not a harsh enough sentence. This is an opinion shared by most people. The other two girls who had been present during the attack had not received the same level of media attention that the ringleader did, but it was reported that one of the girls was serving a sentence in the Walter Sisulu Juvenile Center and the other had been moved to a place of safety. It's been 10 years since the murder of Kiamoghetswe Sefalaru, and all three of her schoolmates that contributed to her death is undoubtedly walking free amongst us now. This is to say, if I have not reoffended, I can only hope that they carry Kiamo with them for the rest of their lives, and that they were changed enough by their experiences but they are now instead living a life that enriches the lives of others. Maybe in some way they can truly show their sorrow and bring honour to Kiamo if they were out there making the world a better place. It won't heal the pain her family had to go through. It won't bring her back. But at least it would bring meaning to her death. These girls are all around the age of 25 now, an age where you are expected to contribute to society. 
an age where life is still only beginning. During this case, I could not help but wonder, was it justice to Kiamo to allow her killers to rejoin society when they still had their whole lives ahead of them? Then again, would it have been fair to keep all of them in prison for 50 years? Were these simply a group of children misled by ideas and temptations of power and wealth? Or were these children truly aware of their actions? These are the questions that makes cases where both the victims and the offenders are all minors so much more difficult. In my view, there are no winners in a case like this. All that we can hope for is that Kiamo's family is lucky enough to never come face to face with her killers in the street, to never see them walk free and be happy, so that they can forever imagine these people behind bars. Kiamo herself would also have been around 25 now, but's not much younger than me. And I find myself wondering, what would Kiamo have done with her life? Would she have become an air hostess, traveling the world, posting a photo of every new city and every new country she visits on social media? Or would she have become a chartered accountant, sitting at home at night, going through endless numbers? Showing off how intelligent she was by doing it without breaking a sweat? Would she have been married by now? Have kids of her own? May you rest peacefully and may you never be forgotten. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Wicked Crimes. I'll be back soon with another new episode. It all depends on my workload and load shedding schedule. I would like to give a special thank you to Johan Jacobs for lending his voice to the disclaimer. I appreciate it a lot. Until next time, be safe wicked listeners.